are listening to Cover Stories, a deep dive into the stories behind iconic album art with Adam Charlie O. This is the story of what happened on stage and what happened on the cover of London Calling, released 14 December 1979. It was September 20th, 1979, or maybe it was the 21st. The record is not entirely clear. The location, however, was the Palladium, an all-fixed-seating venue in Times Square, New York. Penny Smith was a photographer for New Music Express, and she had been assigned to cover the Clash tour in America. On this particular night, she had nearly accepted an offer to go out with friends rather than covering the concert. Instead, she opted to cover the concert, but to change it up and stand on bassist Paul Simonin's side of the stage instead of next to guitarist Mick Jones, her usual perch. In London, the Clash would play raucous punk bars and dance halls full of standing room crowds. In the U.S., they usually played fixed seating venues where ushers, functioning as bouncers, would hold the crowds back and make them stay in their seats. On this particular night, the sedentary crowd was killing the vibe. Simonin's frustration turned to anger, and then he lost it completely. We may not know the day, but we know the time because Simonin's watch stopped at 9.50 p.m. Smith, who was not especially a fan of the clash, remembers seeing Simonin suddenly spin toward her. She said, He was in a really bad mood, and that wasn't like him. He just looked wrong. So I was interestedly watching him, not with my camera up to my face. And then realized his bass was coming up higher than usual, and then my hand took over. Simonin, the man who gave the Clash their name, started as a visual artist, and he put his art school experience to work on his bases. On this particular night, he was playing his London Calling Precision Fender bass. Originally, it had been a white bass with a black pickguard and a maple neck. Simonin splattered red and yellow paint on the pickguard, and he etched the word pressure into the upper horn. He also added a skull and crossbones sticker to the body. This was his instrument of choice because of its heavier weight, tone, and versatility. He explained his mood that night. I was sort of annoyed that the bouncers wouldn't let the audience stand up out of their chairs. So that frustrated me to the point that I destroyed this bass guitar. Unfortunately, you always sort of tend to destroy the things you love. I wasn't taking it out on the bass guitar because there was nothing wrong with it. In a more reflective moment, he said, The show had gone quite well, but for me, inside, it just wasn't working well, so I suppose I took it out on the bass. If I was smart, I would have got the spare bass and used that one because it wasn't as good as the one I smashed up. When I look at it now, I wish I'd lifted my face up a bit more. The bass was completely destroyed. Guitarist Joe Strummer, perhaps sensing the significance of the moment, or perhaps just planning his response to this display, grabbed a broken piece of the bass and was about to walk off with it. Simonin, perhaps more attuned to the moment, recalled, I just grabbed it back and said, I think that belongs to me. 
Smith originally did not want this image to be used on the album. It was slightly out of focus because she was backing away to avoid being hit by Simonin. She said, The lens I was using made him appear a lot closer to me than he actually was. So, and that's the reason it was out of focus. Grainy and slightly out of focus though it was, it was almost immediately handpicked by Strummer to grace the cover of the band's upcoming album. Smith said Strummer looked at the shots. Joe said, that's the one. I said, don't be daft. It's out of focus. Daft held the day. Graphic designer Ray Lowry convinced Smith that the lack of focus was in this case a good thing, as it made it more authentic and spontaneous. Smith's photo, which happened to catch the moment Simonin smashed his bass in a momentary fit of anger while on the stage at the Palladium, went on to become the image that embodied the tyrannical spirit of the punk rock generation. Lowry was the one who put the London Calling album cover together. He had Smith's grainy black and white photograph capturing the spirit of rock music in a serendipitous split second. Lowry first met the band in 1976. He saw the raw energy of The Clash and other punk bands as a perfect match to that that was expressed in the 1950s rock and roll that he loved. Smith's photo connected with an image of Elvis Presley in Lowry's brain that resulted in Lowry pinching the idea of Presley's debut album. The Clash's cover artwork was a conscious homage to the, to the design of Elvis Presley's self-titled debut album. It had pink letters down the left side and green text across the bottom with its black and white spirit of rock photo nestled inside the typography. The font perfectly framed Penny Smith's photo and it called back to the roots of punk rock. Simone said, when that Elvis record came out, rock and roll was pretty dangerous. And I suppose when we brought out our record, it was pretty dangerous stuff too. In a lot of ways, punk rock was born out of the 1950s rockabilly tradition. Simple songs in a basic structure, driven by pure emotion. It's the gritty, crackling black and white image of bassist Paul Simonin's Destruction and Rebellion, captured in mid-chop with his favored 70s precision bass overhead, and moments from crashing into the stage that makes London Calling's cover so iconic. The original album cover artwork for London Calling sold for $115,000 at an auction at Bonhams in London in December 2009. Smith, who fought so hard to keep the photo off the album cover, owes a debt of gratitude to Strummer and Lowry, who were convinced it would make a good album cover. In 2002, Smith's photograph was named the best rock and roll photograph of all time by Q Magazine, commenting that it captures the ultimate rock and roll moment, total loss of control. In 2010, the British Post Office issued a series of stamps with important vinyl covers, and these, of course, included London Calling. This album routinely appears in just about everyone's list of best album covers. Let's hit the pause button and chat a bit. Sorry I'm late. I was lost in the supermarket. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so starting with the bad pun is our kind of fun here at Album Art The Cover Stories. Yes. If that didn't tip you off, and if you somehow managed to not look at your phone when you downloaded the podcast, we're doing The Clash's London Calling, right? Yes, we are. So of all the bands we've profiled, few are actually as formative as The Clash for me. My memory is perhaps as foggy as London itself, because I don't remember at all where I got the copy of that particular record, but it's an important one for me. It's in what I call First Five, which is, for me, an unnecessarily secret list of the albums that first got me into punk, my first and truest love. All of this to say, I, I really love the band. They, they steered me away from the nihilism of the Pistols, you know, the brilliant but reductionist Ramones, and dealt in more worldly and politically charged territory, which is probably what drew me to them, I think. But I want to know what your relationship was with this band, if there was one at all. Well, I'll tell you that in a second, but I'm going to ask you a question sure. first, though, uh, because this was released in December of 79, if mm -hmm. I'm not mistaken. And you don't know what my relationship was. I didn't even know music existed in <laughs> December of 79. Because I had a child in September of 79. Oh, yeah. That, yeah, that was keeping me up and turning my world upside down. Yeah. Uh, so I'm wondering, uh, how did you come to that, that that much later? I mean, you know, I can see if it was released when you were, uh, you know, in your teen years yeah. or something like that. But how did you find it? Well, it's interesting to think about, you know, coming of age in the, you know, the 80s and 90s, you know, 90s really was, or the 90s was really a look back at punk in a lot of ways. You know, the Nirvana and Green Day were both pretty vocal about the bands that, the tradition that, you know, they were steeped in. And The Clash is one of those first bands you hear about. You got to hear The Clash. You got to hear The Sex Pistols. You got to hear okay. The Ramones. Okay. You know, so you kind of go back and see what were the forebears of all this, of this thing that I dig. When you realize there's more than the radio has to offer. Yeah. When you realize there's more than the magazines and that world just poof, blossoms. Well, that, that's cool blossoms. because uh, I didn't have that experience. You know, I, I just lived with the contemporary music. You know, the music they were playing yeah. on the radio of my time was, was the music I had and whatever they were playing was what I had. Well, but yeah. That's interesting that you went back that far. to. But, you know, it's it's interesting, too, because you think about. Uh, you know, this particular episode made me really think about time in the, you know, in the context of rock and roll, because the Clash were not that far away from the classic rock bands that you came yeah, up with, you yeah. know, and there wasn't right. as much for you yeah. to plumb the depths of. Yeah, it was you're not going back to the 40s. You're not going back to the 50s. Yeah, it was at the tail end of my uh, rock and roll. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it's education. interesting. We'll definitely touch on a lot of that, because I think that's a, a really interesting thing. But Everyone kind of knows Rock the Casbah, right? Uh, or yeah, should yeah. I stay or should yes. I go now, you know? Right. But it's wild to think that, in a way, bands like The Clash were influencing bands like The Rolling Stones. Yeah. You know, to a certain extent. Yeah, yeah. So they were always aware of the zeitgeist, what was going on and what was popular. But 79 was an interesting year for, well, for all of us, you know, that's <laughs> when I began. But it was an interesting year for the band, you know? They had only been around for two and a half years, yeah. all things considered. But it was still somewhat strange they hadn't yet played a song on U.S. soil. They'd been here to record some, but hadn't yet played a show, and were massively in debt to their label, CBS Records. They had just fired their manager, and both Joe Strummer and Mick Jones, the songwriters, were in the grip of awful writer's block. 
You know, so it wasn't until Caroline Kuhn, the band's newly hired manager and uh, soon-to-be girlfriend of Paul Simonon, who we'll get more into, you know, she convinced the label to bankroll a tour early on in that winter that, uh, you know, it really helped get things moving yeah, a yeah. bit. So if I had told you, you know, a list of 10 artists, would you have picked Bo Diddley as the uh, the opener on that particular tour? No, that was interesting to read. Uh, you know, and they had that in common with the Stones, as, as you said. Hey, there you go. That's uh, the bridge. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but no, I would never have picked Bo Diddley. But as soon as I heard that, I thought, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. It makes perfect sense. A lot of the British bands, you know, they were so heavily in debt to the your early rhythm and blues, and they all seem to pay tribute in a way that yeah. it doesn't really happen in the United States in, uh, in much the same way. But so again, you know, the Clash handpicked Diddley as their opener on that inaugural Canadian and U.S. run. And um, that tour became the stuff of legend. However brief it was, you know, a lot happened. It relit their collective fire. But a weird anecdote about that particular tour, their first day in the United States after crossing the border from Canada they wake up to the news of their friend Sid Vicious dying. And at that time, they were already hitting it off with Diddley, and he was the one that broke the news to them wow. in the wow. bus, which they were sharing. So I had no idea Just that. A, a really wild, you know, really wild idea. And it also puts rather small bookends on those halcyon days of punk, you know? This is just a couple of years earlier that we had the debut. From the, well, the debut and the only album from the Pistols. So mm-hmm. it really helps frame it in a way, but... Somehow, after this tour, you know, the band manages to write and record a double album's worth of what I consider classic songs that summer. Wildly varied. But it's the last day or so of that particular summer that we're here to chat about, right? That's right. All right, so having recently wrapped writing sessions for their upcoming album, the band hits the Big Apple, which is a fitting place for big things to take place. Um, all of this, I think, you know, the cover of London Calling is a tale of happenstance, wouldn't you say? Oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, just there are so many ways that this could have gone south. Uh, you know, if, if uh, the woman had not showed up, if she had focused her camera, uh, if she had been a minute too late, if she stood on the side that she usually stands on. Yeah, it, it was it was meant to be. Yes. Apparently. Yes. Yeah. And as cheesy as a reference as this might be, I always like to think we all have a sliding doors moment to uh, to call back an otherwise cheesy Gwyneth Paltrow flick, you know, in which her entire life is determined by whether or not she makes it onto a subway. Yeah. A subway car. But, you know, I think had she missed any of these moments, you know, had Penny Smith, the enemy photographer, not declined an offer to hang out with friends that night, we may not be here talking about this album at all. Otherwise, you know, it's a musical masterpiece, to be sure, but the image would have never been. Yeah. So not only does she decide to go to this New York gig at the Palladium, she also stands on Paul Simonon's side, the bass player's side, which, as we all know, is not nearly as cool as the lead lead singer or the lead guitarist, right? right? Yeah. So Mick Jones is where she would typically stand on the... Mm -hmm. Okay, okay, so... Sure, she has plenty of images of old Mick there and his uh, his wonderfully British teeth, but uh, so much has been said also of the difference between British and American rock fans. But punk most definitely has stark contrast. How much of this were you aware of? Had you ever read about just the inherent difference in audiences? Well, I was aware of that 
from like the Stones descriptions, you know, mm, mm-hmm. their their concerts were sounded like everybody goes in and you just stand around or you dance or you do the. You know, there were no chairs, there's no seating, just you know, you just go and and uh, and you act out. And of course, there are epic stories of people climbing on stage to you know to tear at the Stones and getting hit in the head with a guitar by Keith and and all that sort of thing. So yeah, it seemed that the crowds in in the UK were a little more energetic yeah. uh, than the crowds in the US. Most yeah. certainly. Yeah, but I didn't know uh to the extent that that uh you know our our discussions have have revealed to me yeah. how punk fans were in the UK. Yeah, and and you know it's interesting you know, all those grimy and dim UK clubs and in which, you know, punk was born. Um you know, you're just full of pogoing punks who'd express their adoration by gobbing. I'm not sure if gobbing was something you were familiar with before, yes, but all right, yeah, a fancy yeah. name for spitting on the band, right? <laughs> That's right. Nothing says love like a loogie, I guess, <laughs> right? But um, so Paul Simonon, let's get to him. He's the cover star. Yeah, he, he needs is. some coverage. Um, it's funny because he was never the hothead in the band. That was always uh, Topper Heaton, the the drummer. Mm-hmm. But it's yet another wonder that Smith managed the shot that she did. You yeah, know, it, so, it makes it that much more interesting because he was the least likely person to act out like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the band, at least, it seems, on stage. It's true, you know, and it sounds like he was really uh, frustrated by the particular <laughs> lackluster fan reaction. Again, an American audience. Yeah. Um, you know, that was apparently disallowed from even standing. Did you come across that information? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, uh, the ushers and everybody wouldn't let him get out of their seats. And, now, and that was part of what was really ticking him off. Now, what was the deal with that? Because, I mean, I would imagine, was it just a, a fear of a, of a punk band, this rowdy UK punk band? Possibly, but there had also been some incidents in the U.S. of, uh, of people being crushed in crowds. Uh, you know, there were a couple of deaths at earlier concerts. I can't remember who they were right now, uh, but there were a couple of earlier Well, you concerts. just said it, who I, they were. Yeah, you yeah, know, the who was certainly who one was of them. One. Yeah. And I know even here in D.C., the Stones had a, a couple of people who were injured, not killed, but yeah. injured. So. You know, there were uh, there was a typical American overreaction to just about everything. <laughs> that that makes sense. And fear of of uh, this new kind of rock and roll. You know, they had they had weathered the Elvis Presleys and the British invasion. Yeah, but holy hell, it was being unleashed by these punk bands. That's so, right. Uh, th- th- that would have been an existential threat to to the establishment. Yeah, we can't have New Yorkers gobbing too. That, that's man. right. No way. So you know, as you've all seen the cover, you know, Paul smashes his bass much in the tradition of Jimi hendrix and again to bring up the who and countless forebears although i would make one distinction oh that, yeah that please. was all planned oh sure, uh, yeah, that, sure. that was orchestrated yes and i don't think this one was i don't think this it was, was a spontaneous emotional outburst it, it was and i think that's you know but there's also the grand tradition of um spontaneous intentionality oh, when sure, it comes to rock sure, and roll yeah. you know Guitar these things are weapon yeah these are bred into it you know and yeah. you, you don't you don't always come home with the same number of instruments you left That's with right. fair but, point fair so point. either way you're right it was definitely an outburst though and one thing i love about it and it doesn't take a keen eye to notice this but the photo is very much out of focus yeah but it's perfect yeah the fuzziness of it is it works works Perfectly. It's perfect, yes. you know, and, and you know, it, in reading your research, it sounds like Joe Strummer thought so as well, right? He knew yeah, right away. Yeah, because Penny Smith wanted it, uh, didn't want it used because it, she was out of focus and, you know, people aren't going to know what a good photographer I am. But, yeah, he saw right away that this was 
this was exactly what we need. Yeah, I just like the idea that sometimes it's not the best work that becomes yeah. the most iconic, you know? And I'm sure she absolutely came around to it because oh, yeah. this, this is on a few posters. Yeah, this is yeah. on a few uh, lists, you yeah. know? So she definitely got her, got her, her flowers. Jobs. Yeah, yeah, definitely got that. Now, the graphic designer Ray Lowry did the rest, right? Right. Okay, so in a tribute to Elvis's self-titled debut album, they swiped... The layout, the colors, and the font. Everything except for RCA Victor in the corner. You know, as dissatisfied as The Clash was with CBS, they probably would have been happy to do that as well. But uh, alas, they were stuck with the label. <laughs> you know, so Lowry came of age in that Elvis era. Yeah, he did. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Which is about, you know, I think... Um, when rock and roll was dangerous. That's, that's right, when rock and roll was absolutely dangerous. And, you know, when Elvis wasn't yet a king, he was still a rebel. Mm -hmm. You know, and a lot of punk is based directly on that first wave, stripped down, primitive rock and roll sound. Yeah. And none more than The Clash, I think, if you listen to this. You said something really interesting to me just while you we were prepping the this particular episode. And you were kind of surprised at how varied and different the album sounds. It doesn't sound very punk. No. no you know? No. no or or what we've come to expect from a punk band, you know? Yeah, yeah I liked it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. And, you know, you, you think about songs like Jimmy Jazz and Brand New Cadillac. They could have been written 15 years before they came out. And it's, again, to bring time into the equation, it's wild to think that we're nearly twice as distant from The Clash as they were from Elvis yeah. in 1979. So Yeah, the clock is ticking. Time is a flat circle, right? It doesn't mean that much. <laughs> but but it is. You know, I what I always loved about The Clash is their... Ability, in my opinion, to prove that punk is more ethos than sound. And they really carried that off well. But So, small thing here, but I'm intrigued as, you, where you, as to where you found the, this image as being referred to as embodying the punk rock generation and spirit. Because most people would agree with you. Yeah, and that's not something I could have come up with on my own. And I, to be <laughs> honest, I, sometimes I feel guilty that we don't cite the, the sources here when we're doing this, but that would make for a very uninteresting podcast. Footnote, uh, footnote, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. But uh, uh, but once again, you know, when you go to these lists, and I go to them whenever I see one, yeah. you know, the top uh, album covers of all time, uh, London Calling's always right up there. And so, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of people who are familiar with it. And, and I was looking for somebody smarter than me, to be honest. <laughs> I'm, I'm always looking for that as yeah. well. Not me, someone smarter than you. Uh, but until, until that point, we're stuck with each other as co-hosts. But, you know, and I know that, uh, you know, the reason it was interesting to me, this genre isn't necessarily in your wheelhouse in the same way that it is mine. And again, lots of people would agree with you, but it's interesting. In 1979, The Clash were no strangers to the quote-unquote sellout tag. You know, CBS, yeah. after the debut, CBS insisted they use the Blue Oyster Cults producer to work on their stellar but far smoother sophomore album. That, that didn't help the reaction of their punk-punk fans. You know, and I think scholars would also argue that Punk was done and dusted by 1979. That initial UK punk wave was just, mm -hmm. was dead and dead and buried. I certainly wouldn't agree with that. But, you know, ultimately it was their 1982 fall tour opening for, bringing them back, The Who. That was ultimately what sealed it for some. Punk was dead. 
the Clash were touring with the type of band that they were dead set on destroying, you know? And it's interesting because this album, again, is just another reminder that a lot of the things that become emblematic are retroactively so. And I just, I love that. This is the finest hour of The Clash. It's an absolutely incredible album that was majorly successful, but also a sign that Punk's wave had crested and been co-opted, you know, by the mainstream in a way Mm -hmm. that would never really return. You know, you can fast forward to the green days of the world and it happened again with the same sort of fallout, you know, but this I'd say is a top 50 album of all time and certainly top 50 cover of all time. I don't know what your experience was after the, after the fact, what's your analysis? Oh yeah. I mean, you know, the, I, I sit at your feet and learn here. It's, it's really fun for me. I mean, you know, this is a, a genre of music that, that just passed me by because yeah. of the time of my life and everything else. And, uh, and so I get a lot from, from your comments. I hope our listeners get the same. Uh, but now I'd say, yeah, um, you know, if I was making my list of, of most influential albums and album covers, yeah, this this would certainly be in the top 50, if not yeah. higher than that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. agree. Uh, you know, one of the things that, that amazes me is the proliferation of different genres. You know, the, yeah, the, this is the first this album, the first. It seems like, you know, more often than not, every time we sit here and do something outside the stones, it was the first album of this genre. So, <laughs> so yeah, I've got a lot to learn. But yeah, you know, if for some reason you have yet to check out uh, London Calling, you know, it's it's got everything. It's got their their punk sound intact. Yeah. It's got yeah. rockabilly, jazz, reggae, dub. You know, it's uh, all over the place. So. Two thumbs up. Two thumbs up. If you, uh, I think I hear a phone in the background. That's London Calling. We're yes. going to get out of here and see you next time. <laughs>